I'd like to continue our teachings today with some very old and very fresh wisdom and the context in which I'm bringing you this is very much around self-healing. I don't think any of us can heal the world. We can contribute to the healing of the world to the extent that we contribute our own self-healing. Healing the world is a collective function, just as destroying it is. We are in this together, and one of the healings that needs to take place is the conditioned dualism in our minds that constantly divides us from one another on the most absurd grounds, color of skin, um, preferred sexuality, uh, can sing in tune or not sing in tune, good at maths or not, went to a private school or didn't. I mean, really, we have endless variations on the theme. And it's not just within religions that there is great fragmenting. It is also in my personal experience and as well as my observation, even within groups that begin with the highest intentions, the capacity to fragment is very, very strong. The capacity not only to fragment, but then to create a hierarchy. This appeals very much. I'm not sure why. I could speculate that it appeals to the egoic mind, the mind of the, of the nervous ego, the poor little ego, uh, the delicate ego because we are often defending ourselves in intimacy and solitude I wrote extensively about our ego defense mechanisms the ways in which for example we think we're defending ourselves by attacking others this is very common the way we pretend to ourselves that things are other than they are, the way that we trivialize our own, um, our own misgivings or exaggerate them so we're overwhelmed by them, or the way we trivialize other people's uh, wrong, wrongdoings or painful experiences. There's a whole range of things. The way we project our self-loathing and our fears onto other people so that it's the other who carries our own discomfort with being alive. I, I, I took many, many years to write that book. It took me six or seven years to write that book. It was a, it was a very challenging book to write. I hope it doesn't take you six or seven years to read it. <laughs> I hope you can read it in six or seven weeks, or much less, even six or seven days. And it's for sale at five o'clock, too. Oh, thank you, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ruth. <laughs> but, but in understanding a little bit about how we defend ourselves and how some of that defending of ourselves is actually necessary, we're not talking about lying ourselves down on the ground so that everybody could walk over us, or feeling that everyone's sorrow is our sorrow, that is unhealthy, unwise, and utterly exhausting. Yeah? But what I, what I am talking about is the capacity that we have, which we know full well, to think that there is such a vast space between ourselves and others that we can project onto others the things we are most reluctant to own in ourselves, particularly things to do with 
the acceptance of our bodies, our capacity to love and our capacity to hope as well as to forgive. One of the cruelest, the cruelest punishments that humankind has devised is not just the physical torment and tortures that we are adept at as a human family, but also the denial of hope. The denial of hope is a most terrible thing that one person or one group could deny hope as well as dignity to others. It should be beyond comprehension, but in fact it's well within the range of comprehension because we see it all the time. So those are characteristics, not of the other. They are characteristics of our human family. So just as you all have profound, unlimited, divine qualities of soul within you, that is your original nature. So too, you also have the effects of the conditioning that we have all received. No matter how well-intentioned our family, our beautiful school, our, our whatever, whatever. And we're going to talk a little bit later on about the robbed. Um, but when we rob anyone of hope or when we rob ourselves of hope that is hugely damaging now I want to speak a little bit about what hope is because we need to contemplate what hope is because hope generates a very different kind of um, emotion and the actions that follow from that emotion if you compare it for example to feelings of hopelessness, I am a hopeless person, or the other side of hope, which is despair. Yeah? So let me, let me reflect with you for a few moments. Let me contemplate with you for a few moments what hope means. Because it can't just mean hope for a particular outcome. If our hope is limited to a particular outcome, it's rather the same with prayer, which is, after all, an act of hope, isn't it? I mean, in our, no matter how sophisticated we are, we really, really do hope that <laughs> it's our prayer that will get through <laughs> that very crowded email box. <laughs> notice me. Please, notice me. <laughs> My prayer is so sincere. <laughs> We, we, you know, we think this. I, I, I think it. So I, I hope you think it too, so I'm not lonely in my... Yeah. Of course we do. And of course we hope for particular things. And of course we pray for particular outcomes. But the narrower our gauge, the narrower our intention the more likely it is we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Because when we hope for something in particular, we are assuming we know best outcome. And we don't always. Sometimes we definitely do. I definitely do, don't you? Sometimes <laughs> know exactly what... But unfortunately... Not everybody agrees. <laughs> so I could hope away, but, uh, you know, alas. So what is hope? Hope really is coming out of an awareness of two things specifically. One is the truth of impermanence. 
that everything will change. And the second is that in seeking the highest good for all concerned, in seeking the highest good for all concerned, we are supporting our own peace of mind. With peace of mind, hope naturally returns. We don't have to seek it. A peaceful mind has hope. A peaceful mind is hopeful. And there will be many times in your life in which peaceful mind is a memory. But that memory is itself generative of hope. In the times when peace of mind seems far away, there are a number of things that you can do for yourself. One of them is to remember what hope feels like and to testify to yourself that hope lives always in your heart. I am a being of hope. Yeah? I am a being of hope. I am a being of hope. Our divine qualities can't disappear. We forget them. We lose contact with them. They seem sometimes to have abandoned us. But in our deepest remembering, the remembering of the body also. They are never far. They are always near. So, somewhere in your body, hope is remembered. Now, I've had a period of um, illness when sometimes I was in a lot of pain and I didn't pray a lot. In fact, I was sort of surprised in some moments how little I prayed. Sometimes I surrounded myself with light and sometimes I surrounded other people in the hospital or other people suffering with light. But some of the time I, I couldn't even do that, actually. But somewhere in my body, nevertheless, remembers hope. Now, I want quickly to say that whatever health I've regained is not because I'm the lucky person who remembered that somewhere in my body, blah, 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 or that, you know, I've done all the right things and prayed a lot. Absolutely not. I'm only talking about a kind of thread of consolation that occasionally emerged because somewhere in my body remembered hope. And I would also say to you that I don't think I'm a naturally hopeful person. I don't think I am a naturally hopeful person. I, I, I have learned to be hopeful. I think naturally I'm quite a fearful person with very good reasons in as much as the person who was my rock, my stability, My everything died when I was still such a little girl that I hadn't been able to grow up enough myself. And so my my growing up was very premature and very incomplete. I want to say that to you because in each of us, and I, I, I can feel it sometimes myself when I'm hearing someone talk about a quality that I would really like, it's very tempting to think, Perhaps it's easier for them. Mm. So I think it's, I think it's maybe comforting to you 
to know that I am not... Well, you know, we're all contradictory, aren't we? Because there's a part of me that is also so creative and so driven that that in itself is hopeful. Yeah, so what I'm saying is only a little bit of the picture. But I can experience not hopeful. I can experience worried. I can experience flooded with worry. Like that. And I can experience rising up again. So I, I want to say that to you because we're all learning together. I really want to say that we're in this together in our learning of it. That sometimes we need to use our creativity. We need to use our drive. We need to use our determination, which are also all qualities of the soul, to bring us back into the presence of hope, even if we don't ourselves feel it. Yeah, into the presence of kindness, even if we don't ourselves feel it. This is what contemplation gives us. If we spent three or four minutes at the beginning of the day asking, what does the heart need? Hope. hope. Breathe in hope. Breathe out hope. Breathe in hope. Breathe out hope. Surround the situation with hope. Now hope does not die with us, by the way. And, <coughs> and hope transcends the fragility of the body. Hope moves with us when we leave the body. So it's not dependent on being well. Yes, I can. I can. So, uh, I'll give you a little example. Some years ago, I... Um, was asked to speak on hope at a palliative care conference, which was mainly for palliative care physicians and also very importantly for palliative care nurses and social workers and all the people who were working with the dying. And I was asked to speak on hope. Now that's quite challenging in that more formal medical context. And um, what I came to think about very deeply at that time is that as long as we are connected and generating compassion, we are also hopeful. In other words, let me go back. When I said, let's hope, let's, let's broaden what we are hoping for. So, if somebody is actually dying, we might hope that they die in peace or we might hope that they recover or we might hope all sorts of things that are not part of their, their journey. So how do we generate hope in that situation? It's not so much generating it as expressing it through connection. How are we connecting with that person? Not hopefully of a particular outcome, but hopeful of their highest good, joining them in their highest good, expressing this through loving kindness and compassion, breathing with them until their breath goes and hope goes in it, with it. It's not gone. It's just elsewhere. Yeah? The divine qualities don't belong in the body only. We express them through the body. 
they are the qualities of consciousness, right? And consciousness is unique to our species. And with it comes great responsibility that we are often tempted to squander. Consciousness. So, animals may be very naturally hopeful and they certainly feel sadness and can feel despair. But they couldn't will it. They couldn't think, now, this, this state of being is not so good. How will I generate greater hope? <coughs> I am I, not sure that I've made it really clear. And maybe I can't. So let me say it in a different way. That hope is always with us that it's we who forget and when we remember it is there but sometimes wearing strange disguises. When our when our well of hope runs low, then um, it's very, very difficult to attain peace of mind, even relative peace of mind. So it's worth nourishing what your own picture of hope is. It's worth nourishing what cuts across your hope, what diminishes hope for you. And I'm not just talking about hope for situations or for other people, but also hope for yourself, which seems to me to correspond very closely also to self-respect. Self-respect is not dependent on behaving admirably every single moment, but it is dependent upon noticing, consciousness. Yeah? So, to these beautiful teachings. The first is from Lao Tzu. His name is spelled L-A-O-T-Z-U, two words, L-A-O-T-Z-U, Lao Tzu. And he's from the Taoist tradition, which confusingly is spelled T-A-O-I-S-T, Taoist tradition, which is a, oh, a very inclusive, undogmatic tradition. Very um, lovely Here's a bit of common sense. If there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. This is in heaven on earth, by the way. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbours. If there is to be peace between neighbours, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. So if we are to think about a difficult or painful situation, how do we think about it? We think about it with the goal in mind of peacefulness and with compassion in our hearts for everyone involved, but particularly for ourselves. Our self-healing is vital here. Our self-healing is vital here. Our self-healing is vital here. Now here's another little tiny teaching which has the whole world in it from Thich Nhat Hanh. T-H-I-C-H New word, N-H-A-T. 
H-A-H-N, Tay. He's called Tay, T-H-A-Y, which means teacher in Vietnamese. That's the only word I know in Vietnamese. <laughs> to prevent the next war, we have to practice peace today. If we establish peace in our hearts and in our ways of looking at things, in other words, right view, first of the Noble Eightfold Path, right view, if we understand our interdependency and our interbeing, if we understand that my happiness depends upon you and your happiness, safety and well-being depends upon me, if we understand that, then war will not come. War even in our own hearts, dividing ourselves from ourselves, disowning, despising, cutting, yeah? or deadening. Yesterday I would quite like to have included the story of Lazarus because lots of us have to rise from the dead quite often. You know, that was, Lazarus was the brother of those two gorgeous girls, Mary and Martha. And uh, he had the privilege of um, rising from the dead while he was newly dead. <laughs> Um, we also have that privilege uh, in as much as we deaden parts of ourselves and we can bring them back to life. And how do we bring them back to life? Through the regeneration of hope. Spring will come again. Spring will come again. Sit quietly behind your closed door, says Lao Tzu in another place. Spring will come again. It's the truth of impermanence. Mm -hmm. It may be winter in your heart. Spring will come again. Boy, how would we live without poetry? <laughs> Very poorly. Very poorly. So much can only be expressed in poetry. Spring will come again. Sit quietly behind your closed door. Trust, in other words. Spring will come again. So, the only way, says Thich Nhat Hanh, to stop a war is to have real peace. I'm going to read you his whole passage again since I interrupted it. <coughs> to prevent the next war, we have to practice peace today. If we establish peace in our hearts and in our ways of looking at things, war will not come. The only way to stop a war is to have real peace. It's huge, isn't it? It's our responsibility somehow to create peace in our own hearts. Knowing full well there will be periods of great interruption and at the same time holding hope. Sit quietly behind your closed door. Spring will come again. Knowing also that you are influencing others through your holding of hope, through your generation and regeneration of loving kindness and of simplicity. 
the the teachings that I trust most are very simple. That lets me trust them. They are all about conduct and they all seem to understand what difficulties we darlings have. In this we're all darlings. We all have such difficulties which is why we absolutely need one another. Which is why we absolutely need one another. It's not just that we are inevitably connected, but we need one another. We need those kindnesses. We need those appreciations. We need those um, simple glances of acceptance. That is what peacemaking is. <clears throat> it is also something else that we are paying a lot of attention to on this retreat. Making peace also involves listening. First and foremost, and through it all, it involves listening to your own heart, listening to your own inner teacher, listening to the small, quiet voice within, listening to the voice of hope, listening to the voice of nourishment, Yeah. And not just to those voices that say, forget it, you'll never be enough. That is not true. You are already there. Yeah. In learning to listen to other people, we are also learning to listen to what we are sharing, the quality of what we are sharing. As important as the quality of what we're sharing, and I don't mean that we have to be, you know, incredibly um, deep and meaningful all of the time, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Uh, acres of frivolity are highly recommended. <laughs> I'm sure I have much to learn with that. Um, but there are aspects of speech that don't serve us so well and don't serve anyone else very well either. Yeah? Speech that is disparaging or disrespectful or makes us important at somebody else's expense is not helpful. Is not, is not helpful. And when we learn to listen as part of our peacemaking refinement, we learn to listen, not just to what the other person has to say, but to what we ourselves are saying. And when I, when I wrote Forgiveness and Other Acts of Love, especially that book, I and I think I've probably taught this on every retreat I've ever given, that it was a kind of innate impulse that told me I had to pay attention to the qualities of the soul or I'd go under. And so I did. Courage, fidelity, restraint. Restraint is the quality of... of um, of uh, contemplation, by the way, the sacred pause, generosity, tolerance, and forgiveness. But what drove that was this clarity that whatever we pay attention to will grow stronger in our lives. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our listening, we are also discovering 
both inside our minds and what comes out of the mouth, yeah, but also all that self-talk, what are we paying attention to? What are we, what are we watering the seeds of? What are we harvesting repeatedly? And of course, worry lodges itself very deeply in our minds. And we'll talk more about that because that needs a whole, but a whole session. But noticing now, for example, that when we listen in on our own inner self-talk, we can, we can perhaps help ourselves with two things. One we can say, I, I'm thinking about this again, but I am going to remain hopeful. Twenty-four brand new hours are before me. I vow to look at my own thoughts through the eyes of compassion. Yeah. And the other, of course, is our old friend, impermanence, this too will pass. This too will pass. And feel in your body where the body needs some kindness. So, for example, when some of us worry, we get pains in the chest. When some of us worry, we get headaches. When some of us worry, we get driven to particular kinds of distraction that may be quite harmful to us. So just pause, notice, and choose. Listening in lets you pause, notice, and choose. And if, for example, you get a very bad headache or you have a very sore throat or your adrenals are, you know, going crazy or whatever it is, or your arthritis hurts a lot, or whatever it is, really touch that part of your body and send love. Because that is a listening also. When a part of your body needs love, please listen. When it needs loving kindness, compassion, and hope, listen. And don't just listen in abstractly. Touch. As Deborah told us, we are embodied creatures. We are embodied. Yeah. And sometimes we just could put our hands on our hearts and do nothing else but be alive. Raise ourselves from anything within us that is withdrawing from life. Yeah? That's also a listening. And then, of course, in our peacemaking, there is the quality of listening that we offer to others, which you are practicing here, which is spacious, accepting, uncritical and does not need your control. What a relief. <laughs> what a relief. Hilary and I were speaking this morning very, very, very briefly because we're in silence. Very, very briefly. <laughs> Hilary said something that struck me so beautifully as so many of the things Hilary says. It was about a sadness that a particular person who's much, much younger than either she is or I am um, had not really inquired, although the situation was complex between them, had not inquired what was in Hillary's heart. 
And I thought, very often we don't inquire what is in someone's heart, particularly if we know them very well. Particularly if we think we know what's in their heart and particularly if some things have become kind of tabooed. Yeah? Because they get tabooed for good reasons. Because I might say, for example, you know, or Hillary or, or, or any one of you might say what's in your heart and it gets trampled on. So we would say what's in our hearts only, I think, is wise, only when the situation is safe enough to do so. You know, I practiced psychotherapy for many years and I still do some supervision, and which is itself therapeutic. Uh, for me too <laughs> um, and it's the a couple of things allow people to say things in therapy that they might not otherwise say one is that there is a boundary of time secondly that the other person is not dependent upon your happiness in quite the same sort of to and fro also that you know your projections are better understood but it's also the confidentiality that you won't be blamed shouted at it won't be brought back on another occasion when you're feeling weak mm -hmm. and so on and so on so this question of sharing what is in one's heart is quite delicate. In terms of your peacemaking and your self-healing, I strongly urge you to share what is in your heart freely in your journal, if your journal is truly private, and with caution with others, and with consciousness. In other words, if there is a time of sharing what's deep in your heart, that you set it up almost like we do here, or even like we do here, which is that each person has the space to speak, but the other person does not rush in. And that person also has the space to speak, guarding against defensiveness. When what is in my heart may cause defensiveness in another person, then it, it often needs to become a triangle, two sides and somebody else holding the ground. Yeah? Somebody else holding the ground. So each person can feel heard, but not rush in with the habits of defensiveness. I think I write about that in the universal heart. Because our habits of defensiveness are greatest in our most intimate relationships. It's such a wonderful paradox that where we want to be most known is where we are most fearful of being most known. Isn't it true? Yeah. We want to be known. Actually, what we really want is to be totally accepted. We want to be totally accepted. We want to be unconditionally loved. And yet we have such difficulties unconditionally loving ourselves and unconditionally accepting ourselves. So a last word from Lao Tzu. Through return to simple living comes control of desires. In other words, the things that distract us, not just desire for 
living a more beautiful life or desire for being a more appreciative person, but desires that just distract us. In control of unhelpful desires, stillness is attained. Now, in this Taoist teaching, stillness can be highly dynamic. It means an inner stability. So you might, for example, be dancing like the Sufis dance in ecstatic adoration of the beloved. You might be doing the tango in ecstatic adoration of your beloved. You might be walking, hiking, kayaking. You might be doing a thousand things from a place of stillness, from a place of inner peace. So stillness doesn't just mean being still. Stillness means being at peace with oneself and with you. And remember, tides go in and tides come out. But it's through return to simple living, says Lao Tzu. What does he mean by that? I think he means when your thoughts clutter you and overwhelm you, return to stillness, return to the wisdom of the heart. Ask yourself, what does the heart need? What does the heart need? The heart will never need something that damages another person. Never, never, never. Because in damaging another person, you damage yourself. Yeah? So simple living. Simple living is also appreciative living. Simple living is also the living that says, I am enough, as well as I have enough. It doesn't crave for what I've not yet had. Yeah? It doesn't tell me that I, alone among the whole human species, I'm going to live 10,000 years so I can have all the dinners that that enormous amount of money can buy. Mm -hmm. So, through return to simple living. (coughs) Stillness is attained. In stillness, says Lao Tzu, the world is restored. Now this is this line, in stillness the world is restored, is an immense line. Because what it means is that we are restored to our experience of the world. We come back to know ourselves in this place where we already are. Some of our restlessness, some of our agitation, some of our craving, some of our recklessness, all feelings that we all know, recklessness with ourselves. In stillness, the world is restored. In stillness, hope is restored. In stillness, we experience ourselves again as instruments of love. The other gift that simple living in this sense gives us is the freedom of choice. The freedom of choice. When we are agitated, when we are driven by 
the so-called negative emotions. When we are driven by anything that harms us, we diminish our freedom. And our freedom is so, so precious because it is in knowing our freedom that we not only know who we are, that we are conscious beings making choices, and it's in our freedom that we see that we have choices. It is also in our freedom that we can choose which qualities we are going to express and we can choose which leadings which is a very Quakerly word, which leadings of the Holy Spirit, which leadings of the inner teacher, which leadings of the beloved, which leadings of the Buddhas of compassion, which leadings we will follow. Because what we pay attention to will grow stronger in your life and mine. Om Shanti. Mm-hmm.